I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2011. It's with Adam Pertman, the author of a book called Adoption Nation, How Adoption Revolution is Transforming Our Families and America. At several points in the interview, a real-life case of adoption in my own family is mentioned. My brother Steve and his then-partner, now-husband, Scott, adopted a beautiful baby boy from Cambodia whom they named Henry. By complete coincidence, I learned only after scheduling this interview to air today that yesterday, Friday, was the 21st anniversary of the first day that Steve and Scott saw Henry for the first time. So happy anniversary, Steve, Scott, and Henry, and enjoy this interview, please. Our topic on the morning show is adoption. And adoption, of course, is something all around us. It touches so many people's lives. So many of us uh, might be adopted or might have adopted someone or be very, very close to someone who is adopted or going through the process or who has attempted to to, to do an adoption. It, it is all around us and uh, very much uh, an important part of our of our national culture. And, and the way in which adoption is understood and talked about has changed in some truly profound ways uh, over recent years. And that really is the focus of Adam Pertman's excellent book entitled Adoption Nation, How the Adoption Revolution is Transforming America. And we are going to talk about adoption for the next few minutes with Adam Pertman, who uh, just recently, within uh, the last few weeks actually, was named executive director of the Evan B. Donaldson Adoption Institute, which uh, many would regard as the uh, paramount think tank around issues of adoption and, and, and policy matters related to it. Adam Pertman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. We should mention the fact that uh, adoption is not uh, without personal connection for you. Personal connection. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I'm the adoptive father of two, a son and a daughter, um, and it's very much what got me into the field. I was a journalist um, before before I adopted children. Um, I was a journalist. I the short version of the story is that when we adopted Zach, my older son, um, I discovered that we knew so little about this subject that cut so many lives, and on a personal level, that's frustrating because you want to know about the process by which you become a family, uh, and we learned. As a journalist at the time, I was a reporter for the Boston Globe, where I spent 20-some years. Um, as a journalist, I thought I'd discovered an uncharted planet. There was just this wealth of information about a subject that touched literally millions and millions of lives, and so I started writing about it, and that writing led to a series of articles called The Adoption Revolution that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and that in turn, led me to write my book, which I think it's fair to say has changed my life entirely. Hmm. Uh, when you say that there's a sort of treasure trove out there, do you mean that this was sort of hidden information or ignored information? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> it's very, not a lot is written about secrets. <laughs> and adoption has been you know, a secretive topic, shame-filled, for most of its history in our country. I mean, people, you and I are old enough to know that most of the time when we grew up, People whispered about it. Did you know Johnny was adopted? Hmm. Well, often Johnny didn't know, but people around him did. People didn't talk about it. We whisper about things we're embarrassed about. So Johnny, if he knew, knew that some 
everything about him was embarrassing. So we treated it not very well, not as an equal um, parallel way of forming families. And this is part of the revolution I write about. It has changed radically over the years. Interesting. You know, just as a sidelight, we are not talking about abortion today, but of course abortion and adoption are kind of corollary topics. They often are. Right. Um, and, often are, yes. And, and it's interesting to me in that um, that perhaps one one factor in 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 the the existence of of adoption that it's it's uh, uh, and and versus uh, abortion its prevalence tied into that complex web somehow might be the fact that adoption has not been something we have talked about very easily uh, until recently well it is tied into that web i mean in in both in both uh, the way that uh, adoption providers work and in the way that uh, abortion providers work. Uh, typically, very different population groups, very different young women, go to one or the other. In other words, they've sort of made their choice before they walk in the door. On the other hand, it's rare even today, but certainly in the past even more so, it's rare for either one to provide information about the other. In other words, mm. so that has certainly been an issue in an even more profound way uh, uh, abortion has touched this debate because the uh, 20 some years uh, 30 some years ago uh, the vast majority of children born to unwed mothers were neither aborted nor placed uh, nor raised by them they were placed for adoption because uh, because single parenthood was so stigmatized in this country that you just if you were a young woman and uh, gave birth out of wedlock it was unlikely that you parented your own child. That has changed radically. Now, today, fewer than 3%, and some people think under 2%, of all unmarried women place their children for adoption. Wow. And that's partly because the stigma against unwed parenthood has you know, virtually lifted. But it's also because women can get abortion. So, there, I mean, I'm not taking stance here. I'm just saying that all these things absolutely come into play when you, come, when you want to understand adoption and adoption policy and practice. But most of us understand it very, very little. Right. I want you to retell, if you would, a marvelous story that you tell uh, from back in your days as a, a bureau chief on the West Coast for the Boston Globe. <laughs> At the time, you were covering the O.J. Well. Simpson uh, murder trial. Uh, there were literally dozens of you reporters uh, in a small little press room, and I want you to uh, tell us what happened. This is sure. a really extraordinary moment. Well, it was a, a bit of a revelation for me. It was when I was still learning just how prevalent this institution is. Again, it's hard to learn anything about secrets, so we think we know, um, and then we, we find out different. Anyway, I was sitting there. Um, I was typing my daily story, and a woman, the only non-journalist in the room, uh, I'm trying to remember, her name was Diana, I think, it comes up behind me, and we're right on deadline. We really don't have time to talk. But she comes up wrestling a newspaper and says, this is terrible. And I took the bait. I turned around and said, what's terrible? And it was a story about baby Richard, which, if everyone recalls, was the story of a little boy in Chicago who uh, was, was returned to his biological father. A very complicated story that the press didn't do a very good job on, we in the press. But anyway... That's what happened. And uh, Diana was uh, standing there saying, I turned around and said, what's the matter? She pointed to the story and, uh, and, and said, what do you think or something? And I said, well, imagine how I feel. I'm, back then I just had one, uh, one child. I said, my son is adopted. Imagine how I feel, I said. The, 
guy sitting to one side of me, a uh, work for the Chicago Tribune, said, really? Uh, my two kids are adopted. The guy sitting on the other side of me, worked for, I think, Time Magazine, says, really, my two children are adopted. Diana looks at us, looking stunned, looks at us and says, I'm adopted. Hmm. Which helped me understand that we are all surrounded. I mean, we don't necessarily know that, for example, that an adult talking to us is an adopted person or maybe a birth parent. There's no way to know that by looking at people. So we grossly underestimate the impact of this institution on all of our lives. And as we discover it, as we talk more freely about it, we realize it really does touch our lives. And, and what we do and how we think and how we behave affects people, affects people in ways that we haven't thought about before. And what I try to do in the book and, and in my work at Evan B. Donaldson Institute is to show what those effects are, to, sh- to try to destigmatize adoption, to try to not make children feel bad about who they are or families about who they are. And as a result, I think improve us all as a culture and certainly help children. We're talking with Adam Pertman, who is the author of Adoption Nation, How the Adoption Revolution is Transforming America. Um, Mr. Pertman, you, you say at one point that it may appear that the incidence of adoptions in this country is soaring, but that is not, in fact, the case. That's right. That's also, I think, tied up in what we were just discussing, uh, how, how open we are about discussing adoption. That's what's radically changed. What's soaring is the honesty and openness about which we talk about it. I mean, at a time when, I mean, it was not very long ago that people didn't even tell their own kids they were adopted. So how would anybody else know how prevalent it was? But most of the adoptions that took place through the middle of the century and into the late part of the last century were done through, quote, matching. That is, uh, social workers tried to uh, match children who looked like the parents. I mean, it was a silly process. can't even ensure that when you make babies. But anyway, it's what they did, and it was a big pretense. And, you know, it, again, sent a signal that something was wrong with the way we were forming our families. But more to this point, it, it obscured how uh, prevalent it was. The answer was that most white women did not keep their babies um, because uh, unwed parenthood was so heavily stigmatized. Now, as they started raising their own children, people who wanted to adopt still, you know, still wanted to have families. So we started adopting children from abroad, from foster care, children who looked nothing like us. And that's kind of harder to hide <laughs> and is much more visible and much more honest in its way. And as a result, we all get a sense, oh, my God, look how many adoptions there are today. Well, there aren't necessarily any more adoptions. It's just that the parents and the children don't look so much alike anymore, and nobody's hiding, or very few people, are hiding the fact that they did it anymore. So we're simply much more aware of it. Right. I think one of the most astounding mathematical uh, points that you make in this book is when you talk about the statistics in the 1950s versus the statistics today in the proportion of, of number of people seeking to adopt babies and the number of women uh, placing their children up for adoption. Sure. I mean, it's changed radically. This goes back to the, that thing. I mean, unwed motherhood is really the, the core of all of this. You say uh, that in the 1950s, those numbers were basically the same, about the number of women who would place their babies up for adoption, Mm -hmm. that roughly corresponded to the number of people out there that wanted to adopt a baby. We think. 
I mean, again, it's hard to do research on secrets. It seems like there was a rough parallel. Um, today, it's nowhere near a parallel. Many, many more people, exponentially more, are looking to adopt, particularly babies, um, as, uh, as there are babies available for adoption, which, again, is part of this revolution because what you see is more and more people adopting older children, special needs children, children who don't look like them. I mean, this is historically unprecedented, what's happening in our country. Um, and yet historians and sociologists don't seem to be, or journalists, don't seem to be looking at it very seriously yet. If I may, I'd like to find out a little more about your own personal experience sure. of, of adopting uh, two children. I'm going to just insert myself here for a moment. One of the reasons why your, your particular story is especially compelling to me is because uh, adoption is something my wife and I have thought at least a little bit about. Mm-hmm. We're not able to have children ourselves. Uh, Ah, but and, you can have children yourself. Well, you right. just can't make them. <laughs> right, there's the, there's the misnomer. But you can have them. Right, of course. Uh, and you are, uh, or you were, the, the same age that I am now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you did this at, the, at, at a point in your life, which roughly corresponds to the point in my life yep. when I at least ponder this very exciting possibility. Uh, what did you and your wife sort of undergo in, in deciding to do this? underwent a slight education process by going to an adoption agency and going through some classes that they gave. I would say that I'd, I'd like to say now that we knew less than nothing. And I think we did because I didn't have a book like mine. There wasn't a book like mine for me to read. And so I just, you know, let me, let me answer a little circuitously. You know, when we have children by birth, People do things like go to Lamaze classes, talk to their parents about it, talk to their friends about it, read Parent Magazine, read Child Magazine, go on the web. People do sort of their homework. You know, they want to know what this is all about. They want to be good parents. When we, typically when we have um, become parents to adoption, we, we, we figure out which agency we can give a fee to and hope somebody else does all the work for us and we'll become parents. <laughs> it's a very strange notion that, I mean, we need to educate ourselves, too. And so what we didn't do and what you are doing is educating yourself. What we did instead was go for fertility treatment, and that's fine. You know, this is natural, a natural course, a natural progression for most people. You know, if we didn't all try to, if people didn't make babies, there'd be no species. But we went through fertility treatments, I think, for too long uh, in retrospect. I mean, we, we went through so much because, I think, in our guts, because we didn't yet understand that adoption truly was just as good a fam- form of family formation. If we believed it was just as good, why go through all that stuff? Well, because something in our culture and something in us, because we don't understand it very well, leads us to think we want to do it the, quote, right way first. Well, it wasn't the right way. I thank God for our infertility, because I cannot imagine life without Zach and Emmy. And I would do it very differently if I were to do it over again. By the way, this is another part of this revolution that I write about. It, this is, again, historically unprecedented. There are people, I'm not saying it's millions, but it's thousands of people every year now who adopt when they could make babies. This mm. has not happened before in history, to the best of my knowledge and research. But they're doing it because we are learning as adoption comes out, as it's more open, as it's more honest. We're learning its truth instead of living by its myths. And its truth is that it's, it's different. I mean, every form of family formation is different. But it's just as rewarding, just as honest, just as strong, and just as uh, fulfilling as any other 
And that's what we didn't know back then and that I think I've learned pretty well now and that I try to help people understand. What decision they make with that information is up to individuals. I am not a proselytizer. Everybody should adopt. I don't believe that. People should do what's right for them. But they should do it on the basis of good information and not myths and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. One of the things you say in your book, which is so thought-provoking, you, you say, uh, I think maybe in the first chapter, that adoption is at once a marvel of humanity and a social safety valve. And I find that so, such an intriguing uh, turn of phrase because uh, the one thing sounds like you know, a, a picture postcard, uh, you know, a beautiful thought, and then the other seems so kind of practical. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I think it's not an accident that you, that you chose such contrasting um, terms to, no, to talk absolutely. about that. I mean, the marvel of humanity is, is, is multifaceted if you think about it because it, it, the marvel is that infertile people can have families. That's not something that uh, is intuitive or that has always historically been true. Um, and it is so rewarding as a human, as a human uh, enterprise. And the marvel of humanity is that through adoption, we're able to give, we're, we're able to do something that is right in some cosmic way. That is, give homes to children who need them. That's a profound, wonderful thing we can do. Um, it's also a social safety valve, and I think that's, I try to be honest straight through the book, can't preach honesty and not uh, live it. Um, it. It is a social safety valve. It helps deal with the problem of unwanted pregnancy. It, de- it helps deal with social socioeconomic problems. It helps deal with a lot of issues that our culture grapples with. I hope we deal with those better and better, again, as adoption becomes more open. I'm not talking about necessarily open adoption per se. I mean open as in honest, open as in respectful um, of everyone involved in it. Um, and, and, then when it and when it is that, as it gets to be that, then that social uh, benefit um, is greater and greater. We're talking with Adam Pertman, who is the author of Adoption Nation, How the Adoption Revolution is Transforming uh, America. You do make brief mention of the fact that, although this isn't really the focus of your book, that uh, adoption has been with us uh, for a long, long time, for a millennia, I think, oh, I think you say. Um, can you give us just a, a very brief sense of how uh, adoption, the, the, the sort of the mechanics by which adoption has been accomplished over the years, uh, he, either here or abroad or both, oh, sure. how that's changed, how that's uh, sure. changed over time. I, I, I mean, fairly straightforward. It's worth saying at this point, uh, for those viewers who, uh, viewers, uh, that would be interesting, viewer radio, <laughs> um, for those listeners who um, who get the sense that this is some thick sociological text, and you know this because you've read it, but it, it's a book full of people's stories. I mean, this is this is meant to help people understand this phenomenon through people's stories. I mean, it's all drama and tears and joy, um, and, and stories including my own, by the way, um, help to illustrate these points. But it, the points are made, but I think it's important that people not conceive of this as some, you know, thick, dense historical text. Textbook, yeah. Right. It's really, uh, it's soap opera, <laughs> and I think very readable, I think. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop the peddling. <laughs> um, the answer is that it, adoption used to be informal for most of uh, millennia. I mean, there was adoption right back to the Bible with Jacob in Egypt. There was adoption certainly with Moses. Um, Superman was adopted. I mean, there was adoption formal and informal throughout history. Now, as you got into the 20th, America is the big adopting nation. Nothing ever, there's never been anything like 
what the United States does. We adopt more children today from abroad than all the other countries of the world combined. We're, I think, for reasons including that we are, I say in Chapter 3, that we are and have always been an adoption nation. This nation adopted all of us. We all came, except for American Indians, all came from somewhere else. This nation gave us a new home. And I think we, we have this in our hearts, this ability to reinvent ourselves and create new forms of family and embrace people who don't look like us and embrace all sorts of culture. I think this is part of the fabric of America, and it's part of a fabric of our individual lives as well. And so we have become the adoption nation because we do adopt more readily, more freely, more kinds of people. doesn't mean it's always been easy. Again, I think I don't pull punches, but I, I am very optimistic about the shift we've seen. And the basic shift, to answer your question, has been one of, from secrecy and shame. You know, everyone was shamed. Uh, adoptive parents, pre-adoptive parents felt horrible because they were infertile and were made to feel horrible. They weren't doing it right. Hmm. Um, birth parents were made to feel horrible because they got, particularly birth mothers, because they got pregnant in a society where that wasn't um, okay. And they were literally driven underground and made to feel horrible and shameful and like baby-making machines. You know, they were supposed to provide their products and then go away. It's inhuman and inhumane. And adopted people, adopted children, I mean, to this day, your adopted is still used as an insult. My children aren't an insult. And it's reprehensible that we treat them as such or even talk about them as such. Anyway, I'd, so wait, all no, of this, I, I want to understand that better, what you just said. Sure. What is, what is the insult? Look at a movie, and you'll see when TV shows, movies, and the media, when somebody does something wrong, oh, he's adopted. Oh, I see. It's an insult. That sometimes it's used in that way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, again, reprehensible that we we classify a whole type of human being who never did anything wrong as insulting. You see it in movies, you see it on TV, you see it in the media. Um, But that's just the tip of an iceberg. There are examples in our schools in pathology and mental health, among the mental health field, and it's on and on. I don't blame anyone because it's hard to do the right thing when you're dealing with secrets. The good news is, and this is the big, biggest change, that we're coming out of the closet, out of the dark, and now we can start to do things right because we can think about them, we can think about what the benefits are, what the problems are. You know, this is an institution truly that grew up in the dark. Well, fungus grows in the dark. Beautiful flowers grow in the light, and it's coming out in the light. It's not perfect yet by any stretch, but we can do much better and we, for everyone involved when we deal with it honestly mm-hmm. and in the light. I, I wonder if, if, if it's fair to make then a, a, a statement, and correct me if you uh, disagree, but it almost sounds like you're, you're saying that once upon a time, uh, and, and understandably so within the context of adoption being something that was so embarrassing and mm-hmm. such a source of shame for really everybody involved right. that uh, that uh, that often a child that was adopted might indeed find themselves exhibiting uh, certain kinds of emotional difficulties or problems or so on, and that now in this era of new openness, mm-hmm. it, it that is going to be less and less common. Well, we certainly think so, hope so. The all the indicators are that it's true. Um, it makes perfect sense that when you treat people with uh, we teach our kids to be honest right and then we create an institution that that was not and so it, it, it makes perfect sense that people who grow up with a positive sense about themselves 
with honest information about themselves, that doesn't mean it's always easy. It just means you have the, the, the data, the wherewithal to make it okay. I mean, people who, and I'm talking about all sides of the adoption triangle, adoptive parents, birth parents, adopted people. I mean, you know, when, when you're driven underground, your behavior can't be as good, it certainly can't be as honest, um, as if you can live honestly, nobly, <laughs> um, with pride, um, as though you're, not as though, because it's true, as though you're, you're, what you do is as good as it is solid as and as thoughtful as what anybody else does. It's not the same, but, it's, but we can't confuse similarity with uh, equality. Fifty years ago, in the era of uh, Leave it to Beaver, mm-hmm. were there adoption agencies? I mean, was, were the mechanics roughly the same as they are today? Yeah, roughly the same. There were agencies. Now, their practices sometimes differed. I, I mean, the, what they thought was, it was uh, good for everyone involved certainly differed from today. I mean, it was agencies. And by the way, um, these weren't evil people. They were trying to do the best practice as it was perceived at the time. I mean, they told, if, for example, an adopted person came back, you know, a 17-year-old or 25-year-old, let's say, so it's not a young, someone young who you wonder about their motives, but it's a 25-year-old came back and said, I'd really like to find something out about my birth parents. Now, maybe this person has a curiosity, maybe this person has a medical need to know, whatever the reason. Typically what the social worker at the agency would say is, what's the matter? Isn't your adoption any good? Do you not love your parents? Is there a problem? Hmm. Because it was pathological. There was something wrong with you if you couldn't just bury the past and move on in the future. Now, today what we know is that's a perfectly nor- not only a perfectly normal question, because we all, we all saw roots, right? We all want to know who we are and where we come from. Hmm. It's, it's ingrained in us. It's not only, per- but it's also often, now we know, essential to know. Because that medical history may mean life and death, may mean better drugs for you, might mean a better life. So that's a pretty dramatic uh, example of the difference in practice. And there are comparable examples for what, what we're told to uh, adoptive parents and to birth parents. No one was treated quite, <laughs> shall we say, as honestly as they are today in most cases. And some agencies still don't do it so well. But the movement is in, in the right direction. I want to ask you, who is permitted to adopt? And, and I'm wondering, as, as a corollary to that, 50 years ago again, uh, who was permitted to adopt? Sure. We, we imagined back then that it really had to be Mr. and Mrs. American in you know, kind of the standard home setting. Absolutely. It was much more Mr. and Mrs. America. It was certainly married people. It was mostly white people. Um, it, w- it was some people of color, and it was, it, I, I think it was rare, if ever, that a single person could ask to adopt and, and get a yes. Um, today, it's radically different. I mean, um, virtually everyone, one of the, again, one of the pieces of the revolution is that you know, disabled people and single people and gay people, and I'm not saying what anyone should think of any of this. I'm talking about reality on the ground. Um, every kind of person can and does adopt today, and it's changing the nature of our families in ways that I think most people haven't yet gotten their heads around. Uh, changes our view of nature and nurture, changes our view of what families look like, changes our views and understanding of the importance of blood ties. These are big historical uh, elements of society that are being tampered with. Um, and, and all because, in answer to your question, 
virtually everybody, and people, by the way, of varying ages, too. Um, age was always a very determining factor, big determining factor. And today, it's much less of one. People who are older often adopt, very often adopt. Um, and so I mean, the, the whole equation is changing. How about things like income level or whether or not someone has ever uh, been convicted of a crime, those kinds of things? And I'm also wondering, uh, as, as, as a side, sidebar, sure. uh, if, if this is left up to the discretion of, of particular adoption agencies or if, or if legislation really legislates this more generally. Well, the answer is that if to complete any adoption, you have to have a criminal background check. They, and the intent here is to make sure the children don't get harmed. Um, I don't think they're looking for jaywalkers or people, you know, who might have had something in their background that's problematical. Because, um, you know, anybody can make a baby <laughs> if they have the wherewithal without any, any background checks of any sort. Um, but the, the answer is agencies have their own rules. If you're adopting from a, another country, those countries have their own rules. But more broadly... The, the reason so many people can and do adopt today is because of things like the Internet and independent adoption, which sort of throw out the rules, because what you see on the Internet and in advertising newspapers and elsewhere is people, both uh, would-be birth parents and would-be adoptive parents, seeking each other out independently. And if they're making their own arrangements, which is uh, the fastest-growing type of adoption, which is, again, contributing to a lot of openness because those people have to meet and, and, and uh, figure out what their relationship is. But anyway, when they do that, then most of the rules go out the window. And as long as they are comfortable with one another and decide that this works for them, then it happens, you know, regardless of age and so forth. Now, I think most people are making sane, rational judgments, particularly birth mothers. One of the revolutions in adoption is in most cases like this, the birth mother chooses the new parents for her, ch- for her child, which is pretty new <laughs> um, and interesting to people. But, you know, when you understand that that's what she's doing, she is trying to find the best possible home for her child, and she's not going to pick someone she thinks is not going to give that. Now, the money comes into play in this because people who can't afford agencies, people who can't afford to hire lawyers, people who can't afford to do, you know, a lot of advertising and so forth, by definition have more money. And that does lock out some people. And I, I, chapter 8 of the book is called The Money's the Problem, and I believe it is a problem. Hmm. I think money commodifies children. It makes us think of them as products. It locks too many people out of being good parents, uh, who would be good parents. And it locks, most important, it locks too many children out of getting homes who need homes. We really should talk about the the reality of cost and the fact that uh, adoption uh, is is not a free matter uh, at all. And we're actually talking, uh, I think, with very few exceptions, about many thousands of dollars. Uh, first of all, why is that? Where does all this money go? It's a very good question. Um, the answer is that, in, in a broad sense, nobody really knows because the industry, as an industry, is not very well regulated and very well monitored. That said, most of the money is legitimate. I mean, it's not, uh, you, you hear of adoption scams, and again, we do need to fix them. I, I don't ever want to be uh, sound as though I think everything's honky dory. This, all this stuff grew up in the dark, and we don't do it as well as we should. But most of the money goes for legitimate purposes. You pay an agency and you want good legal work. You want good medical uh, help for the birth mom. You want to 
take good care of the child. You want good counseling, a very, a very big factor, I think, in doing this right. You want good educational services. So, you know, in our country, we pay for those things, alas. Um, you know, in England, adoption doesn't cost because those things are socialized. In, the, in this country, um, we pay for them. We want the adoption to be solid, secure, and all of that. So it does cost money, and it's not inexpensive. That said, the, the cost can go from fifteen dollars to $30,000 for an adoption. That's a lot of money. And I would like to see more regulation, more monitoring. And I don't know that we'll find out that uh, there's much abuse. I don't know that. But I do know that when the marketplace rules on cost, I'm not talking about for children as commodities, then prices tend to come down. If, if we as adoptive parents are better consumers and say, again, not of the product of children, but of the services that are rendered to us to become parents, then typically the, the pressure is for the prices to get better. When there's regulation and monitoring, typically the, price, the, the, the costs come down because somebody knows that they're being watched. As it is right now, if, if practitioner X, and I'm not impugning anyone's motives here, but practitioner X knows that nobody's paying attention and wants to charge three, $5,000 more, and they know that there are lots of people out there with money who are willing to pay, then they can. And in my book, that puts children in the same uh, sentence as refrigerators. You know, what the market will bear. That's not acceptable. We cannot treat children as just another commodity. What we can do is put pressure on the services. And I think when we do that, uh, things will get better. I think they are too expensive right now. You devote an entire chapter to the Internet yeah. and, uh, and, and talk in really riveting fashion about how the Internet has had a really transforming uh, effect of, of, upon this whole arena. Yeah. How, how so? Well, first, I, I try in that chapter to use the Internet just as sort of a prism through which to see just a lot of changes in adoption, not just the Internet itself. Um, but the Internet is a very, very good example of, of just the radical changes taking place. First of all, it's worth noting that the Internet has had this profound effect on all parts of our culture. I mean, every part of our world is transformed by the Internet in unpredictable ways. Um, the Internet is changing the way we get information. You know, people who want to know about a type of adoption, adoption from China or adoption internationally generally or infant adoption or foster adoption, you can go on the Internet, on the internet and get more information than you've ever been able to get before. It's a very good educational tool when used as one. It's also a wonderful support group. There are support groups for all those types of adoption that I just cited, for adopted people of various ages, for birth moms, for birth dads, for adoptive parents, you know, to get information, to get support. I mean, it's, it's really, truly wonderful in that respect. Now, it takes some discernment on the part of the people doing it, but it's there. At the same time, it's changing the process radically because you do see adoptive parents advertising for, um, for birth parents on the Internet. You see searches taking place on the Internet, both, uh, mostly adoptees, grown adoptees looking for birth relatives, but also increasingly the converse. You see, uh, you name it, and you see it. And so relationships are forming, relationships are growing, adoptions are being, uh, are, are being formed on the Internet. You see, and by the way, you also see abuses. Remember the Internet twins? The couple, uh, a couple in California adopted the same set of twins that a couple in England then adopted. Oh, yes. And that was a big, famous case that wound up on Oprah uh, for a while, a couple years ago. Well, 
that was a case of the Internet being used in an abusive way. And I would argue an indication of how little our culture has paid attention to adoption because, look, we have – I'm not saying that we've done a good job of regulating the Internet yet. This is still in its infancy. But you do see efforts to regulate gambling on the Internet. Uh, you see efforts to regulate pornography on the Internet. People are concerned about how it's being used. Well, nobody is saying, well, but it's changing people's lives through adoption. Should we be paying more attention to this? Hmm. Should we be careful that there aren't scams out there? Should we figure out? I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying as a society, we haven't paid enough attention to monitor or regulate this field which changes people's lives every right. day. We need to at least raise the question. We need to raise the question and discuss what should we do, what shouldn't we do. Is this as important as gambling? I think so. Um, but we haven't done it, and so there are some scams. Um, but there are also some real benefits. The, the reason I raised it in terms of the Internet twins was I think we learned some of the wrong lessons from that story. People uh, reflexively said, oh, my God, people are abusing the Internet. Well, the Internet also has lots of benefits as it relates to adoption. And in the end, we didn't follow through very well. Even the people who said that, uh, look, what's happening here didn't come through and do actually do anything about it. You devote an entire chapter to uh, the rise of international adoptions, the fact that more and more Americans are adopting uh, children from overseas. Absolutely. And you give us, give us uh, statistics that make it look like that over the course of a decade, uh, that number has, has easily doubled, if not more. It's, it's now near tripled over a little more than a decade, from roughly almost 7,000 um, late 80s, early 90s, I don't have the number in front of me, uh, to the, the last year recorded last year, it was over 20,000 from abroad. Now, those numbers are not huge, and I understand that. But again, you have to think of impact, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of visibility, prevalence. It, the example I like to give, because China is, uh, alternates with Russia being the biggest country from which Americans now are adopting. Um, one little Chinese girl, and forgive the stereotyping, but it's accurate, um, one little Chinese girl in an all-white schoolyard, and and this occurs all across our country, you know, coast to coast, changes the way all the teachers in that school teach family formation. That's extraordinary. For, that's a big impact for one human being. And, and there are lots of comparable impacts. I just give that as a really easy illustration. But even just to give a sense of, of how important I think this phenomenon is, it isn't just mechanical that teaching family formation changes. We all grew up thinking about uh, what families look like, you know, in a stereotypical way. You know, kids look like their parents. We, we, we grew up thinking about nurture-nature issues in a certain way. We grew up thinking about the importance of bloodlines in a certain way. I don't know what all the repercussions are yet, but I promise you the kids growing up with that one child, and it could be a little Hispanic kid, a little black kid with white parents or two mothers or whatever it is that's happening, all over our country, all of those children have very different views of nature and nurture and blood ties and what families are supposed to look like than any generation before. And that's going to have real repercussions on our country at a time when our country is changing, you know, becoming more colorful and more, uh, and, uh, more diverse um, in lots and lots of ways, not just through adoption. But adoption gives us such a wonderful prism through which to learn about it and to see it clearly. What do you attribute these rising numbers to? 
I mean, I, I'm asking specifically about the number of Americans adopting babies from overseas. I should mention, I have a younger brother who just adopted a beautiful little boy from Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So this is a reality in my own uh, family tree. Sure. But is it, is it, does it come down to something as mundane as not enough babies here to adopt? Or do you think there are other factors also fueling this uh, uh, escalating interest in adoption uh, across the ocean? Well, yes and yes. Um, the answer is that I think, just because of the progression in history, if there were lots and lots of little white babies all over America longing for homes, I think most Americans, to be realistic about it, would probably be going to them first. The fact is they don't exist, um, and, and the number of them is dwindling. And so as a, as a reality in, in, in life, uh, that isn't an option. I'm not, again, I'm not impugning anyone's motives. I'm just saying this is what has happened historically to us. Hmm. With, you, mm-hmm. And so here we are without all these, uh, without a lot of white babies, and we are changing culturally. We are more amenable to introduce people who don't look like us into our families and on and on. And so as a result, we add some historical trends that people don't normally think of as adoption-related, like the fall of the Berlin Wall, which revealed you know, thousands upon thousands of children in orphanages, like China's imposition of a one-child policy, which left all these little girls uh, without homes, wars, famine, Cambodia, Latin America. Well, there are children all over the world who needed homes, and lots of would-be parents in this country who wanted to have families. That turned out to be a pretty good match. And at a time when we are more amenable to all kinds of families, all those factors, and some others that we don't need to throw in the mix yet, um, all those factors come together and wind up with your brother with a Cambodian kid, with you know, lots of people with Chinese daughters, with lots of people who don't look like them from all over the world, and, by the way, lots more people who don't look like them from foster care in this country, too. Because well, the numbers from fo- of adoptions from foster care are soaring. Right. Well, and then the other thing that we've not even touched on is the fact that it's not just that the children uh, aren't leave it to Beaver, but that the parents uh, are are not necessarily uh, Ward and June Cleaver either. That oh, we are so seeing right. more and more adoptions that occur. Uh, you said with uh, with single adults and um, and a number of adoptions, of course, that occur with gay couples. Hey, gay, single, disabled. I mean, all sorts of people. Are, are adopting, are, are forming families uh, at, at rates and of types that we, we simply never saw before. Um, it's, it, it's quite an interesting phenomenon that is happening all around us and that we pay marvelously little attention to. <laughs> Until now, with this book called Adoption Nation by Adam Pertman. I do want to ask you uh, about the, a, a really poignant chapter in the book in which you uh, talk about this uh, phenomenon of of search for identity, mm-hmm. and the fact that, uh, of course, this is something that does not just affect those that uh, are adopted, but but all of us search for a, a sense of, of who we are and, and where we come from, but of course an adoptee in, in a very sort of special way. You open that chapter by quoting a college president, G. William Troxler. Right. I, I want you to just talk a little bit about who he is the, the, the words which you quote in, in your book and, 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 and what you think the significance of that is for us who well, read I'm, this I'm book. Not, I'm not sure I remember the exact words you're talking about, but Bill Troxler was adopted. Um, he didn't learn until very late in life that he was adopted. 
um, and that wasn't that uncommon. Um, and like most um, adopted people who learn it later in life, that the people they loved and trusted most in their lives had not told them the truth all their lives. They feel a little bit affronted. <laughs> they feel a, a bit aggrieved. They feel angry. They don't know what to think very often. And so um, he was very upset with his parents, his adoptive parents, but, you know, his parents, the ones he knew. And he eventually came to terms with that, but it took him a long time. There's a funny story associated with this. When he first was discovering that he was, uh, that he was adopted and wanted to... Oh, oh no, no, I, I take it back. The, reason, the, the way in which he discovered he was adopted was uh, he had some clues that something was going on here. He went to get his original birth certificate, and he went to the department, the proper department in the city in which he lived, and um, the clerk said it, it, the birth certificate looked phony. I mean, it was too perfect. It didn't look like any birth certificate he'd ever seen. Um, and he asked the clerk about it, um, and the clerk said, uh, what, he asked the clerk, what does this mean? And she said, well, you're either adopted or you're in the witness, federal witness protection program. <laughs> because wow. the only people who's, who do not have a legal right to see their own birth certificates, their original birth certificates, are adoptees and people in the witness protection program. Boy, what a statement that is. It sure is. About our it? attitudes about adoption. Absolutely right. Wow. One of the things that that, uh, that Mr. Troxler uh, says, in, in as you quote him, he, um, he would like to meet uh, his birth mother, Marianne, uh, if, if she's still alive. At the point that you quote him, he doesn't even know that. And right. he, says, he still does not, by the way. Okay. He says, I, w- I want to tell Marianne first that whatever trauma she suffered in giving me up, it turned out okay. I want her to know I've had a great life. I've had a great family and that I'm okay about the decision that she made, uh, whatever uh, her reasons. Um, he goes on to say that he is, is not out to, he does not want her to become his mother. He already... Has a mother that he loves. For that too. Well, right, of course, uh, and and but then he goes on to say that I, I would also like biological family information, and that's so intriguing to me. The the fact that that this quest that so many adoptees have to find their mm-hmm. their birth parents is is sort of two sides, kind of like what you were talking about with the you know the the marvel of humanity and yet the safety valve, mm-hmm. and it's kind of also a two-sided experience of, of wanting something intensely personal and emotional, and yet at the same time, uh, something very practical. practical. Absolutely. Absolutely. That adoptees, as a matter of course, in this country are denied. And I understand why. I understand what the history of it is, and I understand why so many adoptive parents, because I had the same feelings at first, feel insecure about it. You know, if my son wants to see his birth mother, does that mean she, he'll love her more? Does it mean she'll want to parent him? Does it mean that he's not loyal to me? Well, what we know from the research and from uh, all the uh, empirical evidence is none of that is true. This is my insecurity speaking. It has nothing to do with my son. He knows who mommy and daddy are, but he, but he reasonably would like to know something more about himself. I want to know about his medical history. I want to know about his um, genealogical history. I'll be a better parent if I have more information and get over my insecurities, which I've, I've mostly done and still getting there. <laughs> but we adoptive parents have faced a different set of circumstances and need to. But this is a clear illustration of why good information and honest information is best. Hmm. Because once I know that the research and and all of the empirical evidence indicates that a the adoptees are not confused and b that the birth parents 
do not want to become mommies and daddies. They've made that decision. They've come to terms with that. And, you know, most of the people searching, by the way, are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't think they're really looking for new mommies and daddies. So all of these myths and stereotypes that we have in our heads really start to evaporate when we get good information, and it makes us better parents. And I think Bill Troxler's story really illustrates that. Right. Now, if, if, if uh, adopted parents don't necessarily have to fear a shift in their own children's uh, feelings, uh-huh. um, to what extent do adoptive parents need to be worried about the, the, the birth parents having a, a change of heart? Well, before the fact, that it's, it's very real. I mean, it's, in infant adoption, um, birth mothers... Um, very often, at least half the time after giving birth, even if they've said, if they thought they were going to place the child for adoption, it changed their mind. Because the, the process of giving birth is big and profound. They are not baby-making machines. They cannot just go away and forget about what happened. And very often they decide, I need to parent this, this human being who just came out of me. Now, here's where money often comes into play and our, our myths and stereotypes do. Often, adoptive parents, pre-adoptive parents, think, see that, a birth mom changes her mind and say, how dare she? We, made, we had a deal here. I paid X thousands of dollars in this. Whoa. Hmm. So you're buying the kid, huh? And she didn't deliver a product. Now, I understand how we feel this way and how our, our feelings and our thoughts get muddied. But the way I write about it in the book and I think it's a, a decent way of thinking about it, is it's the adoptive version of miscarriage. Only in our case, the child is alive and well and in the arms of someone who loves her. Hmm. Ours is a better miscarriage, <laughs> if there is such a thing. It is heartbreaking. You, it is something to grieve and get over. But we can move on and adopt other children who do need homes. And that, anyway, you get the picture. I don't need to belabor it. Hmm. I think that we need to have fresh, clear ways of thinking about these things to understand them well. The, uh, the, the interview, I think, needs to circle back, if it can, uh, to your own personal story with uh, your two children, uh, Zachary and um, Amelia. If I yep. may just ask a question or two. Of course. Uh, how old are they now? Zach is eight, Emmy is five. And I, I, don't, I don't presume to... <laughs> To, to ask you... Ask to whatever be, you want. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that, that we need to know every detail, but I, I think it would be helpful to our listeners to have some sense of, of the decisions that you and your sure. wife have made in, in terms of talking about the fact that they are adopted. Well, the, the first question is that I always, not always, that I invariably get from pre-adoptive and newly adoptive parents is, when do I tell our kid that he's adopted? Um <laughs> Well, and I always answer with this same story, uh, and it's a true story. A social worker friend of mine was placing a baby into the arms of the new adoptive parent, and they looked at her and whispered, when do we tell him she, he's adopted? You know, they have to whisper in front of a two-week-old, you know. <laughs> um, when do we tell him he's adopted? And the social worker looked back at them and said, on the way home. <laughs> and that's how, that's how we have talked to our kids about adoption, from the first minute. Now, could they understand what the heck we were talking about? Of course not. But they never, ever thought that adoption was something, was a word, a concept, a feeling to be ashamed of, of, to be hidden. It was always part of their auditory vocabulary. As they get older, we talk about at age-appropriate ways. We talk more and more about them, about their experience, their birth parents. 
Will there be complexities? Of course there will, but no more than in interracial families, single-parent families, divorced families, you know, all sorts of families have their own individual complexities. But what my children, and I hope a growing number of children, will never do is feel ashamed of who they are, think that something about themselves was so bad that nobody could talk about it, that nobody could say the very words that describe them. They'll never think that. And I think that we're all better off as a result of it. And it, just to answer one unspoken question, um, my daughter's adoption is now open. We have a relationship with her birth mom. And um, my sons, we are trying to open uh, with, uh, it's more complicated because of his birth parents situation, but we are genuinely interested in pursuing an effort to, to open it up because we, as we learn more and feel more secure about our parenting, um, we want that for them. We, for them, meaning our, mainly our kids, but also for the people who created them. We're very, very grateful to them. This this book is really beautiful from the very first page when you dedicate it, first of all, to Zach and Emilio, your two children, and to your wife, Judy, and you say then, to our children's other parents for allowing us to share their magnificent creations, which is such a wonderful way to uh, to put it and uh, a, a way for all of us to understand uh, the miracle that that adoption is. And then I'm so struck by the fact that your final dedication are to your own parents. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? What, what, what drew you to want to also dedicate this book to your own well, parents? you know, one thing the parenthood certainly does in a way that, you know how you, growing up your parents always tell you, you'll never understand how much I love you? I think every <laughs> parent a lot tells that to their kids, because I think there really is an element of not being able to understand it until you are a parent yourself and understand that relationship and understand that pure, unselfless, pure selfless love that uh, I think parents have for their children, no matter how they became their children. And so I think that when I sat down to write the dedication, that just poured into me. You know, I, uh, my love for my children helped me in a way I never could before uh, appreciate my parents' love for me and their support for me. And I wanted to acknowledge that, plain and simple. It's a terrific book in so many ways. The book is Adoption Nation, How the Adoption Revolution is Transforming America by Adam Pertman. It's published by Basic Books. Adam Pertman, who is also now executive director of the Evan B. Donaldson Adoption uh, Institute, which uh, will be examining some of the, the really complicated, difficult challenging uh, questions and problems that uh, we have uh, uh, mentioned through the course of this interview. May, I, per- cite, may yes. I just mention two websites oh, if please. anybody's interested? Um, the one for the Adoption Institute is www.adoptioninstitute.org. Lots of great information there, I think. Um, and people can contact me uh, through that site. The, the, the email address and everything is there. And the website for my book, if people are interested in seeing a little more about it, is... Uh, www.adoptionnation, all one word run together, dot com. Adam Pertman, we thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure.